True crime has been something I haven't done in quite a while, but it was something that I used to do quite often, at the very least once a month. So I decided to bring back those series, but instead of doing individual documentaries like I used to, I'm going to compile them into scary story compilations similar to the normal videos. This way, more eyes and ears will be on these cases and it'll give me the chance to be able to do them more often. Every single case you're about to hear was written and researched by myself. If you have a case that you would like to recommend for me to check out, be sure to comment them down below. Or if you have links and other stuff to send, be sure to send them in at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description. Now. Let's get into these creepy and downright strange true crime horror stories. I don't often focus on Asian mysteries simply because I don't speak or read their many diverse languages. I often get suggested a lot of interesting, lesser known puzzles from the region and recently got sent a link to a news article about a murder case in New Delhi, India. This was no average murder case though. This case seemingly involved a love triangle, jealousy, and cover-up. The way the victim was killed intrigued me and caught my eye. Not to say murder is intriguing, but our story today covers death by being buried alive. Sometime in early March of 1980, 19-year-old Guadam Jasinghani was making his way home from college. It is unclear whether he was with a friend or a cousin, but someone did join him on that walk. Guadam was in his sophomore year at St. Stephen's College, located in the central area of New Delhi. His family was native to New Delhi, and he had grown up in the area. From reports and write-ups I have found online, many of his friends and family said he was liked by all of his peers and had many friends. Somewhere along the way, Guadam and his friend, or cousin, it's still unclear at this point, split ways. Guadam stopped at a bus stop, and his companion went on his way walking. Nobody would ever think this would be one of Guadam's last interactions. No one knows how Guadam vanished from this bus stop. The last person who saw Guadam had left the bus stop and had no idea what had happened. The bus stop was reported to be busy around the time Guadam would have been there, so many speculate someone had to have seen something. But what if he was lured away by someone he knew and not abducted? With so many people around at the time, it would be impossible for a struggle to go unnoticed. At first, it seemed as though no one cared about Guadam's disappearance. He had vanished without much of a trace from a busy bus stop. His parents didn't even seem concerned until the next day, on March 7th, when the family received a note claiming Guadam had been kidnapped and demanded the family pay a ransom. Rightfully freaked out, the family reported their son missing to the authorities. It seemed the police were not too keen on being bothered with this case though. They tried to say Guadam probably just ran off and not to worry much about it. They claimed the lead was fake and continued to ignore the case and not investigate. Two weeks later, an anonymous call would call the police, claiming they had information on what happened to Guadam. According to this caller, Guadam had been involved in a love triangle with a mother and a daughter. This mother and daughter were staying in a guest house in New Delhi. 
This caller claimed that this mother and daughter also had some sort of love triangle with a smuggler who owned a hotel in Mumbai, formerly known as Bombay. The caller said Guadam was dead and had been murdered. This caller then dropped a bomb on police, giving them an alleged location of Guadam's body. He said he would only be wearing one sock when they found the body to prove the caller was authentic. The caller then hung up and was never traced or heard from again. From what I could find, sources conflict a bit on what happened after this information came in. A few articles claim the police searched the area and others say that a security guard happened to have found it by accident. What can be said for sure, though, is that Guadam's body was found on March 28, 1980, roughly a mile or so away from the location given by the anonymous caller. Here's where this gets even more interesting. Guadam's body was found with his feet sticking out of a shallow grave with a sock on only one foot. The details of his death are genuinely shocking. When the autopsy was conducted, mud was lodged in his throat, nose, and ears. It was ruled that Guadam was buried alive and died of suffocation. His arms were tied behind his back, leaving him unable to escape. He had a broken chest bone and many broken ribs, suggesting that he had been beaten before thrown into his grave, still breathing. The sad fact that his feet were sticking out told us he likely had tried to drag himself out, but ultimately failed. The post-mortem report suggested he was probably dead up to two weeks before being discovered. In the same time period, the New Delhi police told the family he likely was just a runaway. Guadam's father would offer a 15,000 rupee reward. For those unaware, a rupee is equivalent to a dollar or a pound in India. Not in currency exchange, it's just their dollar, basically. The New Delhi police would claim to interview well over 200 people of interest within Delhi and the surrounding states. Despite these efforts, though, nothing of worth would seemingly ever come up. No leads or information seemed to be out there. Aside from the police stating they think jealousy could be the motive for the killing, at this point, it looks like no suspects have been named publicly. Of course, when a high-profile case is handled with such negligence, the police would face wide criticism. Many student organizations and even members of the Indian parliament criticized the New Delhi police for not taking immediate action when presented with Guadam's disappearance. They were also targeted for not following up on leads related to this murder. This was a prime example showing a pattern of Delhi murder cases remaining unsolved because of negligence. Many think the police were paid off to ignore these murders, and others believe the police didn't care. Two years before Guadam's murder, he had two relatives named Jita and Sanjay Chopra, who were 16 and 14 years old and were kidnapped and held for ransom. They were killed when the kidnappers, Koljit Singh, Jaspir Singh, got scared when they learned the children's father was a respected, high-ranking captain in the Navy. That case, however, would be solved within the year, and the kidnappers were sentenced and hung. Even though these cases aren't entirely considered to be related, it does raise a few questions on a potential motive. This case remains unsolved and has had no new leads in decades. Who killed Guadam Jasinghani? Why did they kill him? Was he involved in some love triangle? We may never honestly know the facts with so little information to base our theories on. Unless someone comes forward, that is. And with it being around 40 years later, 
that may never happen. While searching for possible explanations, I did run across a Reddit post that speculated it could have been another ransom kidnapping gone wrong, just like the case of the Chopper children. But I am leaning more toward the potential possibility of jealousy though, simply because the only other information we have outside of the details of Guadam's death is that he was allegedly a part of some sort of love triangle. But I must admit, being the son of a high-ranking Navy captain probably meant he would be a part of a wealthier family for the area potentially. Who called the police with the information? Will this case ever be solved? Maybe we will never know. This has proven to be one of the more complex cases I have researched. Unfortunately, I struggled to find reliable resources that had archived information on this case. It was a reasonably famous case in the area at the time, but since it was well over 40 years ago, most of that is lost to the local libraries or time. The articles I did find were in various languages and did take a lot of translating, but I hope you enjoyed this nonetheless. Researching the darkest and most depressing topics online will undoubtedly present you with many tragic cases that are never solved. I often encounter cases that seem to have been forgotten and ignored by our justice system. As I keep looking into these things, I notice this more and more. I keep finding a trend of lazy and unjust investigation conducted by law enforcement, especially in the 1980s it seems. I have made it my mission to shine a light on these cases in hopes that one of you watching may have some information to share. The story we are covering today is a genuinely failed case by the justice system. The story of what happened to Keith Warren has haunted his family for over 30 years now. Officials claim he took his life, but the evidence points to something much more nefarious. What happened to Keith Warren? Well, let's do our best to find out. At 19 years old, Keith Warren was on his way to a promising and bright future. He had recently graduated from Kennedy High School in Silver Spring, Maryland. He was on his way to college and pursuing further education. During the summer, he was hanging out with friends and working a few jobs. Keith worked at Glenmont Chrysler and Belpre Shell. I am unsure for how long he worked there or what his schedule looked like. Before I go any further, I want to stop and say that most of this information I have on this case came directly from Mary Warren. Keith's mother herself. Mary has been running and maintaining a website dedicated to her son's unjust death for over 30 years. She has made it her mission to not only put the facts of this case, but point out the prejudice and negligence of the local police force. You can check out additional information, evidence, and documentation, and even donate to the investigation at the KeithWarrenJusticeSite.com, which is currently maintained by the family. Keith was well-liked and a personable person who made friends very quickly. Safe to say this would be a double-edged sword. Keith had made friends with some undesirable people over the summer, some of which may have been involved in drugs and crime. Now that we are more acquainted with the background of the situation, let's dive into this story. Keith received a phone call on Tuesday, July 29, 1986 and then left home to hang out with some friends. Keith never came home. The next day, Keith's mother, Mary Warren, called the Montgomery County Police 
and notified them that Keith was a potential missing person. Mary was told that until 48 hours had passed, they could not go look for him unless he had an extreme medical condition. He was an adult after all. Two days after Keith Warren hadn't returned home after hanging out with friends, paramedics from the nearby fire and rescue station got a call from a girl who claimed someone had committed suicide in the basement of their house. The house in question is 14655 Tynewick Drive, not too far from Keith's home. Rescue personnel arrived at the scene and were met by three people, Chip Wynn, the house owner, Claudia Lawson, Chip's girlfriend, and an unidentified male. I could not find much more about that third person. Officials had been informed that Claudia had been the one who called in the report. When officials asked to see the basement, they were suddenly told the body was in the woods. When officials asked the group to join them in the woods, they declined and sent Claudia. Claudia had never given a reason why she had called, saying the suicide was in the basement. This screams a red flag for me, significantly since Claudia would yet again change the storytelling. She had stumbled upon Keith's body while walking her dog in the woods. The paramedic on the scene, Dallas Lip, noted that this scene did not look like a suicide. Montgomery police officer Luther Leverett from the Wheaton Glenmont Police Station responded to the scene and took over. According to Mary Warren, this officer seemed to know who Keith was and who Chip Wynn was. She admittedly claims the officer, Luther Leverett, did not follow the proper police procedure and did not secure the scene and close off the area to preserve evidence. According to multiple bystanders, the police officer seemed to be in a rush and was very unprofessional. Officer Leverett said, Why would this have to happen on my lunch break? This is highly concerning to me. I couldn't imagine an officer of the law reacting this way to a suspected suicide. According to the reports, Officer Leverett immediately ruled the death a suicide. Over the radio, he told the county coroner not even to bother coming and to mark the end as a suicide. In the reports, Leverett notes Keith had, and I quote, apparently jumped off of a log. The paramedic who arrived on the scene stated there was no log or anything else for Keith to jump off in the area. Officer Leverett removed the body from the tree, had Keith's body sent to Colin's funeral home, and immediately embalmed the body. This is, of course, not the proper procedure. It wasn't until seven hours later that Keith's family was notified about his death. Now, think about this for a moment. They had processed the entire scene, sent the body to a funeral home, skipped a trip to the morgue, and never told the family their loved one had been killed let alone committed suicide. This is absolutely unacceptable on every level. Officer Leverett was given Mary Warren's work number and offered a phone to call her, but they declined and said to have her call him when she got home. What sense does that make? After receiving a call from her neighbor telling her to call Officer Leverett, she was distraught and couldn't tell Mary what was wrong. Upon finding out the news, Mary screamed, and was told that Officer Leverett was out on another call and would not be available for at least two hours. Again, what sense does it make that we have to wait for a specific cop to get information about a situation involving your child? Roughly two hours later, Leverett showed up at Mary's work and questioned her about Keith. 
Mary had mentioned he had been missing for two days, and that's when he dropped the bombshell on her. He told her that Keith had committed suicide and asked why he would have done such a thing. The following few statements are from Mary herself. I wanted to include her exact words to truly express how deceitful this investigation was to her son's death. I asked if the officer had found him. Officer Leverett responded that yes, he had been found, and he had committed suicide. He questioned me why Keith would have committed suicide, preying upon the innate pain and guilt that any mother would feel upon receiving such a message. I cooperated with him the best I could while agonizing over this revelation. At the time, I trusted Officer Leverett. Even though I could not think of any reason why my son would take his own life, I tried to think of any recent disagreements between my son and me. The only thing that came to mind was my strong objection to Keith's choice of car. Officer Leverett later exaggerated my statement and used it to substantiate his creation of a reason. It was Officer Leverett's idea that Keith had become depressed over this and committed suicide. Although Keith had no history of drugs, I asked Officer Leverett several times whether drugs were involved. Given that the area of Aspen Hills where he lived had reported drug activity amongst teenagers, he emphatically replied, no. Upon his departure an hour later, Officer Leverett handed me a business card from Collins Funeral Home in Silver Spring and told me to contact them after 9am the next day. At first, Mary said she believed the narrative that Keith took his own life was true. She had yet to realize or to be educated on the details of the case. As far as she knew, Keith was found and sent to a morgue. When she learned this and found many discrepancies too numerous to ignore, she had concluded that this was no suicide and others agree with her. After Mary met with Officer Leverett, she called her brother and had him go to the funeral home ASAP and identify the body. For whatever reason, he was denied entry multiple times and told to come back the next day. After a full 24 hours, they finally let them very briefly see the body of Keith Warren. And to put a cherry on top, Mary was even sued later for not paying for the services even though she had not ordered them to embalm her son's body. At every step, the officials were making this as hard as possible for the Warren family, and for no seemingly good reason. When Mary requested her son's clothing, she was told they were destroyed because the amount of body decomposition had deteriorated the clothes, which makes no sense to anyone with a brain cell. Bodies do not decompose that badly in two days in those circumstances. Now, it might be more believable if this were in a swampy area or something along those lines, but it wasn't. Mary also refuted this. She even works in pathology for a living. She also requested the rope and eventually was given a brown bag containing the string and Keith's signature brown boots. A few days after Keith's body was found, the Montgomery police chopped down the tree. They claim to have done so to collect further evidence, but nothing has seemingly come from it. Police treated this case as a suicide from the very beginning and called it an open and shut case. I firmly believe this is not the case, and Mary Warren agrees. There are so many unanswered questions here. Why was protocol not followed? Why was the family not contacted until seven hours later? Why was the body not sent to the coroner? Why was the tree cut for evidence if this was a suicide? Most importantly, 
Why does the evidence point to murder? A few years later, on April 9th, 1992, Mary had found an envelope addressed to her on her front porch. There was no return address or anything like that. She opened it to find original copies of the police photos from the crime scene. Mary has never figured out who sent these to her, but a note was included in the envelope. According to this note, Mark Finley and another redacted person would be next. Four months later, Mark Finley was killed in what was claimed to be a freak bicycle accident. Even stranger yet, Mary claims her car was broken into and the note was stolen, but oddly enough, nothing else was taken. After closely inspecting her son's photos, she noticed several odd things. First, she did not recognize the clothing Keith was wearing. She did his laundry and was very familiar with his wardrobe. Second, as Officer Leverett had said, Keith was not wearing his brown boots. He was wearing a pair of white running shoes which were not his. Lastly, Keith is nearly sitting with his feet touching the ground. It doesn't even remotely look like he had jumped from anything. It seems like he was propped up where he was after he was already dead. After receiving these pictures, Mary demanded the case be investigated more thoroughly. Police were shocked by how she had received the images and were now willing to talk to her. Albeit with little interest, the Montgomery County Police refused to move forward even after the new information was presented. Mary requested to see the tree that they had cut down, but they said it had been destroyed in a fire at the police HQ. Why does it seem there is a massive cover-up at every turn here? Assistant State's Attorney Matthew Campbell went on record to say that the police did a poor and sloppy job on this investigation, but still did not have the case reopened. It would seem this would be the end of Keith Warren's story, gone but surely never forgotten. But this is not the end. A group called Clams, Chatter, Laughter, and Mingling Society became interested in this case. It helped raise thousands upon thousands of dollars to have Keith's body exhumed and have independent pathologists and other forensic scientists conduct an autopsy and toxicological exam. Five separate pathologists found that Keith had died from inhaling or ingesting toxic chemicals and not from asphyxiation. These results were sent to Dr. John Smiliak, the chief medical examiner of the state of Maryland. He declined the report saying the chemicals were likely from the embalming process. Now, as I feel that could be a logical answer, I also think it would be precious to investigate further into this. According to Keith's mother, some of the chemicals found in Keith's body are not the type used for embalming, and the toxins found were much more lethal than the embalming fluid. Whether Keith took these toxins on his own accord or not is to be proven, but sadly, the official ruling of the death remains suicide by hanging. Keith and his story has been featured on one of my personal favorite shows and inspirations, Unsolved Mysteries. This stirred up many tips, but one was more interesting than the rest. An unknown female from Alabama called in and claimed to have dressed Keith's body. She didn't explain why Keith was undressed, but she did say she dressed him in somebody else's clothing. This tip confirmed for Mary Warren that her son was dead before he was strung up in that tree. This case is truly one of the most tragic I have ever covered. When I stumbled upon this case, I just knew I had to make a video on this and spread awareness for this case. 
The blatant cover-up from the police boggles my mind. Something more happened here, but I can't say exactly what. However, I can say with certainty that justice was not served here, and a family still grieves over 30 years later. If anyone has any information on what happened to Keith Warren in July of 1986, please send your tips and information to info at thekeithwarrenjusticefoundation.org or be sure to visit the website thekeithwarrenjustice.com for more information and documentation on this story. How many of you work as a waitress or a waiter? How many of you work in the service industry in general? I know many of you have encountered some creep or danger at work. It is an unfortunate reality we all must accept and prepare for, that not everyone on this earth has good intentions for us. Of course, I cover cases from all over the globe, but recently I have found many unsolved cold cases from Florida, where I am from, that are tragically not being worked on. It is my hope that I can hopefully shed some light on these issues, and hopefully somebody listening will have something to help further this case. Fort Lauderdale, Florida is a large city about 25 miles north of Miami. I'm sure you have all heard of the Florida Man memes. Well, Broward County, where Fort Lauderdale is located, is where nearly all of those stories come from. With more than 6.2 million residents, there is no lack of crime and mystery. Traveling back to the late 1960s, 1969 to be exact, we find ourselves in a much smaller and quiet Fort Lauderdale area. Life was hustling and bustling as the area prepared for a boom in growth. Among the people living in the area at the time was 21-year-old cocktail waitress Carmen Marie Halleck. Carmen, as stated already, was a cocktail waitress for a local restaurant. She was born and raised in Fort Lauderdale, and honestly, outside of this, I have not been able to find much or learn much about who Carmen was in life. This is rather unfortunate, as I usually like to let you all get to know the victim a bit before we cover their tragic demise. On December 18, 1969, Carmen placed a call to her sister-in-law and informed her of an apparent appointment she had with a male teacher from a local junior college that night. For those unaware, a junior college is just another term for a vocational or trade-type school. Carmen was excited and mentioned that this teacher was also an undercover government agent. This alleged meeting was an interview of sorts for a potential job opportunity. Carmen was excited about this prospect as it would include international travel and a high salary. She mentioned that she bought a nice pair of black patent leather pumps and was planning on wearing the new shoes to the meeting. She was also thought to be wearing a black cocktail dress. After this phone call, no one has ever seen or heard from Carmen Marie Halleck again. Understandably concerned, Carmen's sister-in-law grew worried when she was not able to get in contact with her. She had been trying for days and days, and when Christmas rolled around, she decided enough was enough and went to check in on Carmen at her apartment. After arriving, she checked Carmen's apartment and found no sign of her. She also noticed that she could not see Carmen's car keys, driver's license, or vehicle registration. 
Oddly, she found Carmen's bathtub full of water, and her dog had not been fed. Knowing what Carmen was supposed to be wearing when she was last seen, her sister-in-law searched for the black high heels and cocktail dress and could not find them anywhere within the apartment. Eventually, Carmen's car would be found abandoned in a nearby parking lot just a few days later. Sadly though, with no sign of Carmen. A missing persons report would be filed for Carmen, but sadly there was no discernible trace or information as to where she could have gone until sometime in April 1973. This is where the story begins to look more familiar. You see, Florida, especially in this time frame, had a lot of potential serial killers out there claiming that they had done crimes but with no real evidence behind it, even after confessing. This one has a lot more evidence behind it, but somehow, this case remains unsolved. In April 1973, a little over four years after her strange disappearance, two gold-filled teeth and a shamrock pin were discovered in possession of a man named Gerard Schaefer Jr. Gerard, a former police officer and now a known serial killer of women, the teeth and pin found in Schaefer's home would be confirmed as belonging to Carmen Hollick. Schaefer was a real piece of work. He was convicted of two murders of young women in Florida in the 1970s. Neither of these girls were Carmen Halleck, though. He is also suspected of killing numerous others since officials found the belongings of other missing girls in his possession. I will touch on some of these other victims toward the end of this. Carmen's remains have never been found, which is why she is still listed as missing, but likely deceased. The authorities in Florida reopened Carmen's case in 1995 in hopes of connecting Schaefer to the crimes. A monkey wrench would come in the form of an inmate named Vincent Rivera who killed Schaefer in prison in 1995. Rivera has since been convicted of the murder. I have seen many people praise this act, but in my opinion this act destroyed any real chance of Carmen and the others ever getting justice. Since Schaefer was no longer living, the crimes and cold cases potentially connected to him halted their investigations. Carmen's issues remained officially unsolved, her case is open but is classified as inactive. The story angers me deeply. We will likely never know what happened to Carmen that night. We will never understand why she was targeted or why she had to lose her life. As I said earlier, I want to take a moment to overview a few of the other missing women connected to Schaefer. Even though he was never charged in Carmen's case, her teeth were found in his home, and many other victims' possessions were also found. A locket belonging to Lee Bonades, a 25-year-old woman who went missing in Boca Raton, Florida in 1969, was also seen. But again, Schaefer was never charged with any of these murders when her body was found in Boca Del Mar, Florida. In 1978, nearly 10 years after her disappearance. Her body was not identified until sometime in 2004 though. Schaefer is thought to have been involved in the disappearances and likely the murders of Peggy Ron, Wendy Stevenson, Pamela Nader, Deborah Lowe, Nancy Leichner. Sadly, these cases remain unsolved, likely due to Schaefer's untimely death. Schaefer wrote a book titled Killer Fiction with the help of his ex-girlfriend, Sandra London. If you are interested in me detailing these cases in more detail, definitely let me know in the comments and I'll be sure to make a follow-up. 
Ultimately, we are again faced with a crime that could be solved. Once again, we are hindered by vigilante justice, poor police work, and a slow judicial system. Carmen Marie Halleck did not deserve to live such a short life. If you have any information that may kickstart this case again, please submit any information. You can always remain anonymous to Broward County Sheriff's Office at 954-480-4300. Thanks for listening to these creepy and downright tragic true crime cases. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more like this, be sure to hit that like button as it helps me out a ton. Not only does it help the show grow, it lets me know that you like this type of content. If you have a case that you would like to suggest for me to cover in a future episode, please be sure to comment about them in the comments down below, or send me any information you may have at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Be sure to hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications to never miss a new episode as I upload them nearly every single day on all things natural and supernatural. These cases do take some time to research and write things up on, and I do have plenty of more ready to go, so I will be doing more episodes very shortly. If you're on the go but don't have YouTube Premium, but still want to listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Spotify, Apple Podcast, Stitcher Radio, and just about anywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you'd like to support The Swamp outside of that, maybe check out the merch store. I've got t-shirts, hoodies, and more. Maybe join me over on Twitch. Over there, we do all kinds of cool stuff like live narrations, horror games, and more. You can find a link to do so in the description as well. We have a lot of fun there. Be sure to join me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and I will see you all soon with another creepy episode.